Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with ESPN's Tim Kirchin. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the program, we welcome a longtime Major League Baseball writer and ESPN broadcaster. Fresh off his appearance in Colorado, where he was calling the 2021 Celebrity Softball Game, where he got to work alongside with his son, Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Tim Kirkjian. Timmy, thanks for coming on the program. Well, thanks for having me, Brett. Uh, This would be... What happened to me on Sunday night, ran on Monday night, would be like playing next to your son in a big league game. And I don't want to be corny about this, but that was like the highlight of my, one of the key highlights of my professional career is I got to call a game with my son, who's only 27 years old, and he was better than I was on the air, which was tremendous. It was the worst game I've ever seen in my whole life, and yet it was hilariously funny. It was I've never been more proud of my son, the way he handled himself, and it was just a highlight of all highlights for me. Yeah, I, I tuned in and I saw it. And I, I thought it was the first thing I thought was that that's got to be really cool for Tim right there. All of us, you know, especially as, as time goes on and, and we get old. I mean, when I just take it to my playing days when when really nothing was that big of a deal. But now you get a little bit removed and, and I'm off and I, you know, in a, in a week from now, I'm going to travel to go see my, my son, Jacob, who's an A-ball. And uh, until you realize it and, and you watch uh, your kids and, and chasing their dreams and, and uh, you know, going after what we went after as kids, it's it's just different. And, and you said it. What a, what a highlight for you. And I was watching that and I thought that's that's got to be pretty cool for him. And he probably doesn't care how the, this broadcast goes or, or anything. You were just going to you were going to sit there in the moment. Yeah, the I took my son to Cooperstown many times when he was a kid. So one time he was about ten, and I was doing Radio Row, and one of the one of the uh, radio broadcasters from a small New York station asked my son, who was ten, if he would like to do a little spot on what it's like to be a ten-year-old at Cooperstown. So my son did an eight-minute spot on the radio. And the producer came to me afterwards and said, I don't know if you know this, but your son is great on the radio and he's only 10 years old. And my son came up to me after that and said, Dad, that's what I want to do. He wanted to be on the radio. And here he is right out of college at Syracuse. He went to Cleveland and was on the radio with his own show. Now he's in Las Vegas with his own show. So, Brett, it's just another reminder with our kids. The light goes on certain times. And it's the greatest thing in the world to realize this is what your son wants to do. So he's been doing it ever since. And I got to do a game with him on Sunday night. It was, again, as good as it gets for me. Yeah, very, very cool. Uh, all right, tell me tell me about the TikTok video. I, I got in just in time to see that. You almost knocked over the monitor. What What's up with that? Well, first off, I'm 64 years old. I'm the least cool guy in the whole world. I'm the worst dancer ever. I have no natural rhythm. I'm 
more wooden than Pinocchio, and yet I had to do a dance on TikTok. I didn't even know what TikTok was until about three days ago. And an 18-year-old TikTok star, Jojo Siwa, who's the nicest girl you'll ever meet, she helped me do a dance. Now, I told my producer, I'm not doing this. I am a journalist. I can't do this. And he said, you have to do this. Do it for your son. So I attempted to dance on TikTok or on YouTube or wherever we were. It was the single stupidest thing I've ever done. And yet it was part of the show. And another reminder, every once in a while, you have to have a good laugh at yourself, which I do all the time, by the way. So I took one for the team there in the 15 most embarrassing seconds of my life. But I got it done. I didn't knock the TV over. I didn't fall down in the middle of the dance. So I consider that a success. Yeah, but you know, you've always been one of those guys. You can pull off stuff like that. You know, all of us go through the same peck. All right, when we get asked to do something that's outside of our comfort zone, I think we all have that moment where we say, wait a minute, I can't do that. This is going to be humiliating. But for some reason, and you've always had that about you, Tim Kirkton can get away with it. It doesn't matter how bad it is. You can still make people smile. Where, where if somebody else did it, you might sit back in your seat and go get this clown off the air. But, but you've, got, you've always had that. You've had that special something that not too many people, it, it doesn't matter how, how bad it goes, how well it goes. There's something about you and just your way that that makes you just smile and go, oh, Timmy, you know, and, and, and I think that's a that's a cool quality. I think that's why you're Tim Kirchin and a lot of well, people aren't. I, I think it's a height thing and a size thing. I think I could get away with certain things because I'm 5'4 and I weigh 140 pounds. <laughs> now I'm really old. So I'm a little old, strange little man and I can get away with a few things. But I repeat, I do this. So people understand that you have to be self-deprecating once in a while, especially in this sport. I tell people and players all the time, you understand this, Brett. This is the hardest game in the world to play. And if you don't have a good laugh with it once in a while, it will tear you to pieces. And covering this sport, even though it's the most most enjoyable thing I've ever done in my life is cover this sport. Every once in a while, you got to have a few yucks along the way. Otherwise, it'll it'll tear you to pieces. It's it's too hard to cover. It's too hard to play. So you got to laugh with yourself once in a while. And there was a little more than a, a few laughs at my expense the other night. But again, I'm in as long as it's for the team. Without a doubt. Uh, yeah, I just got back from Seattle. Uh, I went up there for the weekend and uh, I threw out the first pitch. It was kind of commemorating 30 or 20 years ago uh, when we had the All-Star game in Seattle. And, you know, once again, you, you step away from the game. You know, it's one thing to be playing, then you, you're freshly retired. But when you take a few years before you come back and, and uh, it was a really cool weekend for me. A lot of, uh, I don't know, I just walk down memory lane. That's kind of my city. And, and, uh, you know, it was was 20 years ago and it's amazing how, how time passes so fast. It seemed like I was watching Mike Cameron do a tour of, you know, it was his first all-star game that he got, he got elected to in that 2001 season. And I remember they did a little uh, special piece on Mike Cameron and, you know, Mike Cameron with the big smile and, and he's just, people just, he lights up a room and he was walking around the, the concord and and 
showing his picture that they had on one of the pillars. And it was like a kid on, on, on Christmas morning. I remember it like it was yesterday, but it was cool going back and just reliving that season. All-star games in general, it's all-star weekend. Um, you've been to a lot of these all-star games. You still enjoy it. And, and does it ever get old for you? I first off, how'd you do on the first ball ceremony? Did you throw? I'm a telling strike? you, did it, you throw from the top of the rubber? What did you do? People, people don't understand. Brett Boone in his heyday. If you ever said to me, "Hey, Brett, one day, yeah, twenty years from now, you, you're going to throw out a first pitch and you're going to think about it like the night before, how you're going to deliver the pitch," I'd say, "Timmy, you're crazy. I can do this <laughs> blindfolded." standing on my knees and throw a perfect strike. I'm telling I thought about it for two days. I got some tendonitis in my elbow. I went under the grandstand before with a bat boy. You know, I got the, I got the, uh, I got a suit on. So I'm, you know, it's a little restraining, but I'm, I'm starting to get loose. And I'm going, all right, I feel pretty good. We went over about four different deliveries. And I said, what are you, what are you going to go with? And this 21 year old kid said, Booney, Give me some good velocity because nobody throws, you know, nobody throws the pitch hard. I said, all right, I'm giving it to you. I didn't go to the rubber. I went in between, you know, the the, the cut of the mound and, and the rubber. I didn't want to slip or anything, so I didn't want to get up on the rubber. A rare back, good height, good velocity. I got to admit it was a ball away, but but the catcher made me look good. He caught it. Everybody thinks it was uh, it was right down the middle. Went, it went right. isn't, without a isn't hitch. This beautiful, isn't this beautiful, though? You could throw a ball in your sleep when you were five years old. You were born to do this because of your grandfather and your father. And here, 48 hours before doing something that you could do in your sleep when you were five, you had to give it a great deal of thought because that's how important a first ball ceremony is I love it that you gave this all that kind of thought. You don't have to throw a strike. You don't have to throw from the top of the rubber. All you have to do is throw from the dirt and get it there in the air because everyone knows who you are. And I'm proud of you for not overdoing it and saying, I have to get up here and throw as hard as I can. So Nolan Ryan threw out the first ball at a game like 20 years, like 10 years ago, he was like 65 years old. Okay. Jim Sundberg who caught him with the Rangers was his first ball catcher that day. Typical Nolan Ryan. He goes to the top of the rubber and he throws and they, they had the guns on him. He threw 85 miles an hour on the ceremonial first pitch and Jim Sundberg who caught him and his days with the Rangers got startled. Like, I didn't know he was going to throw this hard. And he had to he had to crouch down real fast just to catch it. And Sunberg told me, and I split my pants. I had to walk off the field and my pants split open. That's what <laughs> happens sometimes when Nolan Ryan throws out the first ball. Love it. Yeah, and you know, the reason I was thinking about it, I said, okay, this is kind of, you know, I haven't been to Seattle in three or four years. So, you know, I've, I've, I've got to do, uh, I've got, I, I've got Rick Riz that I've got to do an hour show with. I've got, 
I'm gonna, they, they have me on TV in the third inning. Uh, in the fourth inning, I've got to do the radio. So there's going to be a lot of talking after this first pitch. If I throw a bad one, and this is this is why the thoughts crept in, you know. I didn't want to pull, and, and not to make fun of this, I didn't want to be knoblock now all of a sudden because that's all I'm going to hear about for the next, for any anything I go on is, what about that pitch, you know. So that's what really trouble, I'm telling you, when he caught it, and he came out, the, the kid that received the pitch, he caught it, and he came out to shake my hand. There was a sense of relief, like, whew, we got through it. But, uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a good time up there. And like I said, brought back a lot of memories. Okay, well, I'm glad you told us that. Now, I'll tell you about the All-Star Game. I've covered every one of them since 1981. <laughs> every one of them is special. Every one of them is great. I've loved them all. Everyone is unique. I was there when Freddie Lynn hit a home run grand slam in 83 at Comiskey Park. Still the one and only grand slam ever hit in the All-Star Game. I was there when Ichiro hit an inside-the-park home run in the All-Star Game. That's never happened before either. I was there when Pedro Martinez struck out five guys in the first two innings, 99 in Boston. And before that game, Brett, you might have been there. I don't know. Ted Williams comes to the pitcher's mound in a wheelchair, and all the All-Stars surround him on the pitcher's mound because most of them had never seen him before. They'd never met him before, and it was like the coolest thing ever. All those guys were afraid to talk to him, and and Cal Ripken and Tony Gwynn said, we're going over and we're going to meet with with, with Ted. We're going to meet Ted. And all the hitters and pitchers were like in awe of Ted Williams. And after that game, Ted Williams told Pedro Martinez – you're one of the great pitchers I've ever seen. And Pedro Martinez still calls that one of the greatest thrills of his entire career is that Ted Williams, for me, the greatest hitter of all time, other than Babe Ruth, told him what a great pitcher he was. That was a magical night in Boston. Almost every All-Star game has some magic to it, and I've loved every one of them, and they're still as good today as the first one I covered. Yeah, that's, that's, oh man, that's, it's, it's stuff like that. It's, you know, and I even, I go back, I remember, you know, grandpa telling me those stories, the Ted Williams stories and and about all the guys from his generation. It is really a thrill uh, when you're a player and you get to meet the guys of yesteryear, you know, even one or two generations removed. And all you do is you hear, you hear about these stories and you hear about the legend of this and the legend of that. Then they're right there in front of you. It's kind of surreal. And I think it's a, a really cool thing that makes baseball such a unique, I don't know, such a unique sport and, and, why it is the greatest game in the world. All right, Timmy Kirkjian. First, first, Brett, but, but let me just finish there, okay? Uh, every time I ever ever covered an old-timers game, I always keep score of the old-timers game because I get to write in the lineup, you know, like DiMaggio, Williams, you know, Brock, Gibson, you know, all the great players that you've ever seen over the years, you get to write their name down in a lineup like you're actually watching them play. That's always how important it is to remember the people who came before us in this game. It's still such a thrill for me after all these years to meet those guys. Sorry, go ahead. 
No, no, I, I agree. I love talking about this stuff. I, I remember uh, spring training. We had one of those. It was Major League Baseball put it on. I was a young player. I was with the Cincinnati Reds, and I got invited to play in this old-timers game, and my grandpa was in it. And I remember Gramps was, you know, and, and you remember Grandpa, one of the proudest men, not only of his generation, but but when it came to his family, I, I don't know if I've ever met a prouder man. And I remember that day he's got his grandkid with him. You know, <laughs> I'm a current player, but he's, he, you know, he's walking around like it's my grandkid who's 12. And he takes me into the locker room and he couldn't wait. He's like, I got to, you got to go meet Feller. And, you know, so I'm, I, I go up to Bob and, and Gramps, proud grandpa. I go, this is my, this is my grandson, Brett. He plays for the Cincinnati Reds and Feller, you know, he gives me that cockeyed look like your grandkid. Yeah, I know who he is, Ray. He goes, and Bob Feller proceeded. <laughs> To wear me out for for about four or five minutes, making sure when I left that conversation, I was well aware that the players that played then were better than me and all my teammates. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds just like Bob Feller. And I know you're not going to tell the story, but I'm going to tell it for you. At Comiskey Park, help me here, Brett, you, your dad, your brother, Aaron and your grandfather Ray were all on the field at the same time. The only family of three generation all-stars in the history of baseball. And you had that picture taken. I've seen that picture. I get chills every time I think about it. What did that day mean to you that you were an all-star, your brother was, your dad was, and your grandfather was, and you were all in the field at the same time. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I, I definitely was appreciative of that moment. I remember it was Aaron's first all-star game. And what I remember most about it was how my father was and, and uh, how my grandpa was. And, and now fast forward 20 years or 18 years, my dad's getting, you know, my dad now is probably a similar age to Gramps was then, but I remember the emotions that he had because, you know, those Boone, those Boone, uh, Bob Boone and Ray Boone, they're the stoic Boones. They, they don't show emotion. They're, they're men's men. But to see those two in that atmosphere with their, with their, their son and, and their grandson respectively, it, it was a really cool moment seeing how emotional they were and how proud they were. And I was proud that Aaron made his first all-star game. Cause I remember the day I got to call my first all-star game. It was like, Wow. I grow up and, and I want to be a big leaguer. Okay. I can check the box. I'm a big leaguer. Then I got that first all-star invite <clears throat> and it was in Colorado, ironically enough, that where, where the 2021 is. And I remember walking to that locker room my first time and I didn't care if I played, I didn't play. I just wanted to be able to lay my Jersey out on the desk where everybody, where everybody signs, everybody's memorabilia. Barry Bonds is over there. Uh, Tony Gwynn's in the, in, you know, caddy corner to me. And I'm, and, and I had a moment where I made it, I've really made it. And it was such a cool thing, but to see my dad and my grandpa on that day, how proud they were of Aaron and myself. That's what made that, that picture so special because now I see my dad and I see how my dad is with my son. And he, he, Jake will get a, hit a double in the gap and, and Gramps will almost, you know, Gramps, my dad, we call him Gramps now. Right. Dad will, t- he'll, he'll tear up. 
And I'll be like, Dad, it's just a double. He goes, I know. Stop it. You know, he's kind of embarrassed that I catch him. But it's really kind of cool to see how vulnerable they are and just how they're just overwhelmed with emotion. It's really cool. But, you know, they just want for their their family members to succeed so much. So that's what I remember about that picture. It was just how special of a day it was for Grandpa and Dad on that particular day. Yeah. Aaron told me about 10 years ago, he said, I've seen my dad, he said, cry twice in my life. The first time was when he told me as the manager of the Reds, you made the all-star team. So you were told by somebody else. Aaron was told by your father, who was the manager of his team, you've made the all-star team and his father, your father started to cry. And Aaron said, I've seen him cry twice in my life that day and the day Aaron got the job as the manager of the Yankees. That kind of stuff really matters to anyone who's been around the game for a long time. And I love that stuff. Yeah, it's it's really cool. All right. I want to talk about Tim Kirchin, your childhood. You're born in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, and in doing my homework, uh, your dad, who, who went by Jeff. Uh, was an MIT mathematician. I think he worked for the Army. Huge baseball fan. You take it from there. Well, my dad was a really good player, Brett, and he taught his three boys how to play the game, and he mostly taught us how to have a feel for the game. My two brothers, Andy and Matt, are in the Hall of Fame at Catholic University for baseball. My oldest brother, Andy, was a great college player. And my dad taught us how to play. And he's my favorite person in the history of the world and always will be. He never forced anything on us. He never missed one of my games. He never missed one of my brother's college games. It was amazing what my dad did. And he just instilled in us that if you're going to do this, you're going to do it right. And if you want to play, I will help you with this. But everything I've done in my career in baseball is it goes right back to my father, who, again, taught us to understand the game, to love the game, and to have a feel for the game. And it also helped, by the way, Brett, that I went to Walter Johnson High School in Bethesda, named after the greatest pitcher of all time. So there's a certain amount of destiny there for me that you go to Walter Johnson High School, you work for the school paper called The Pitch. I did some work for the yearbook. It was called The Wind-Up. I mean, once you recognize this is what I want to do with my life, and that's what I realized in high school, I need to make a career in baseball. But when I graduated at five, two and a half and 115 pounds and looking really good, I decided maybe I better find a way to get to the big leagues in some way other than a player. And that's when I decided I'm going to be a baseball writer. And I've been one for 41 years. And it's uh, it's been the greatest uh greatest reward of my life is to be around this game for this long, the game that my father loved so, so much. Yeah. And isn't that cool? And, and, you know, I get asked the question all the time, Oh, well, Brett, of course you were, you were groomed to be a a major league baseball player just because of the family you come from. And and it, it dawned on me when you just talked about your father, he loved the game of baseball. Uh, You guys would talk the game. It, It was everything, but yet, it wasn't pushed on you. It's like, son, this is what I love. Hopefully you love it too one day. That's exactly how I was brought up. 
You know, it was, of course, you know, it, it makes sense. I'm going into the family business. Gramps played for a while. I never got to see Grandpa play, but he'd tell me the stories. Dad was pretty much playing my whole childhood up through college. And there wasn't an ounce of pressure ever put on me. And people are amazed about that. I said, it was put in front of me. It was presented. Uh, dad was, dad and mom were just very supportive of me growing up and said, Brett, we want you to do what makes you happy, whatever you want to do. And, you know, dad, probably wink, wink, but, but I hope you choose baseball. But it, it's a really cool way to go. I never felt an ounce of pressure ever. You know, the third generation thing when, when I was going through the minor leagues, it, it was more annoying than I felt pressure. Like, quit talking about my dad and my grandpa. Let's talk about me hitting 330 and AAA. That's what it's all about. But uh, I never felt any pressure. I never felt that I had to do it. It was just in the family. It was loved, obviously, in my family. But it was a very... You know, just organic. Hey, hope you love it. But that that's cool hearing that, that there was no pressure. You got to do this. You got to do that. It was just something you loved and you always and you always want to do. You you strike me as a you know, John Miller always talks about uh, stratomatic baseball. And I think Kirk, you was probably into that stratomatic baseball that I could picture you as a kid doing that. Yeah, when I wasn't playing, I was playing APBA or Stratomatic as a kid. And as I grew up and got into baseball, I found so many people who were doing exactly what I did. John Miller, the great broadcaster, who you brought up one night. I left something at the ballpark, and he said, and he had broadcast a major league game that night. And he said, come up to my room. I'm picking up. So it's like midnight. I go to his room, and John Miller after calling a major league game is sitting in his hotel room playing Stratomatic by himself at midnight. And he's playing the Toronto Blue Jays. And he goes, I love the Blue Jays bullpen. And he'd love to take that card for Dwayne Ward and pitch him in the eighth inning. And then Tom Hankey in the ninth inning. And that always struck me. He loves the game so much. He calls a big league game and then he plays Stratomatic alone after the game and Keith Hernandez told me once that when he got drafted to go play pro ball, he's packing his bags and he packs his stratomatic game in his suitcase. And his father looks at him and goes, Keith, you're a professional baseball player. You can't take stratomatic with you. And Keith said, but dad, I'm halfway through the 1970 season. He had played the entire season by himself in Stratomatic, and then he went off to play pro ball. So it was so encouraging to see and hear how many writers, broadcasters, and even players played Stratomatic, APBA growing up. That made me feel a whole lot better. And you talked about, uh, you just said Dwayne Ward was in the eighth. Oh, you just gave me... I get a twitch when I hear that name, Dwayne Ward. <laughs> he, he was he was one of the first when I first got to the big leagues. He was one of those closers that that kind of lets you know that you're not in AAA anymore. Because I'd right. look around and and I'd go, "There's no Dwayne Wards in Calgary, Canada." This thing, right. you know, I'm at a different level now. There were certain reminders when you first make it at the players are a little bit different here. And you just mentioned Dwayne Ward. Like I said, I get a twitch like, Oh, that's a heavy sinker. That's a heavy right. sinker. I never want to see that thing again, but uh, right. yeah, you're Buck right. Showalter, you're right. Buck Showalter was a great college player, a great Cape league player, great minor league player, did it all. And, and like in his third minor league season, 
He goes up against Mark Langston for the first time. Buck's a left-handed hitter, and he saw Mark Langston's slider for the first time. And Buck remembers taking a step out of the batter's box and went, yeah, I've never seen that before. You know, there's the next level right there. Mark Langston's slider. And that was the epiphany for him. This is what I have to learn to beat now because I've never seen that before. And you saw something similar with Dwayne Ward. That's why I love baseball so much. It's those little moments when you recognize, hey, I can do this. Or sometimes, hey, I'm not sure I can do this when somebody's throwing this hard or doing something this well. So you mentioned uh, Walter Johnson High School. Yeah, that's that's yeah. It, it, there's something there, Walter Johnson. You mentioned the pitch. You're you're getting your start, and uh, <laughs> and you know as the sports editor of the pitch. Now you go off to the University of Maryland. Uh, tell me about that, and and is is it starting to build? Is this is definitely what I want to do? This is this is my life, baseball. Yeah, I. I went to journalism school. I graduated with a degree in journalism. I decided then this is what I want to do. I had to learn how to write, Brett. Believe me, this did not come naturally or easily. Other writer friends of mine were born to write. I was not. I had to figure it out along the way. When I got out of college, I decided for sure this is what I want to do. I ended up going to the Washington Star, which was a great newspaper, paper folded after a couple months. Then I went to the Dallas Morning News, and I hope this translates, Brett, but this was the night I was positive that I needed to be a baseball writer. I was in town. I mean, I just got to the Dallas Morning News. I had been in town for about a week, and we got a tip at the Morning News that Ron Meyer, the football coach at SMU, was going to be the next football coach of the New England Patriots. So this is a gigantic story in town. So our football writers are nowhere to be found. So my sports editor says, Tim, you've got to do this story. So I, I've never met Ron Meyer. I didn't know Ron Meyer from Oscar Meyer, believe me. So I, I call him on the phone 20 times, no answer. I have to go to his house at 10 o'clock at night to interview him about this story. They tell me how to get to his house. I finally find it. I knock on the door. And remember, Brett, this is 1981. You know how small I am now. It was even smaller back then, and I actually looked young back then. So I knock on the door and I say, hi, I'm Tim Kirkjian with the Dallas Morning News. And Rod Meyer looks at me and goes, oh, okay, how much do we owe you this month? So I, I, I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry, but he thought I was the paper boy. And I had to explain, no, I'm actually not the paper boy. I'm actually a real reporter at a real newspaper, and I've come to ask you some questions. So I ask him all the questions. He lies to me about every question. I'm not going to the Patriots. You've got this all wrong. I go back to my apartment. I call in the story. And like 10 minutes later, Ron Meyer calls me in my apartment. I have no idea how he found me. And he said, your competitor from the other paper just showed up. And I told him the truth, and I didn't want to get you in trouble your first week on the job. So here's the real story. So he told me the truth. I got my story in on time. He's going to the New England Patriots. So that was the night I remember where I said, all right, I've covered baseball before, part-time. This is all I want to do because I don't want to go to a college football coach's house who I've never met before be mistaken for the paper boy. I said, I'm going to be a baseball writer. And from that day on, I've been a baseball writer ever since. 
So you mentioned you started with the star. You also had a little stop, the Baltimore News American, which folded yeah. as well. You're over for two, but things start to get better. You, you right. go off to, you I, go I off to Texas. In two months, Brett. I lost two jobs in two months. That would be like you playing Major League <laughs> Baseball for two franchises that folded. Folded. <laughs> went away while you're playing second base for them. That can't yeah. happen. That's, that's what happened to me, but from the Baltimore News America, then I went to Dallas, which was a very good newspaper, and that's how things started to go in the right direction, and that's <laughs> when I became a real baseball writer when I was covering the Texas Rangers. Out of nowhere, a week before spring training, Brad, our base, our baseball writer, Randy Galloway, became the columnist at our newspaper, and my sports editor, who was my sports editor from Washington, Dave Smith, it's a week before spring training. He doesn't have a baseball writer. And he looks at me and he goes, all right, you're covering the team. You're the beat guy for the Rangers. And I was like 12 years old. I didn't know what I was doing yet. I covered some baseball, but being the beat guy, Brett, and you understand this, being the beat guy, you're in charge of the team for your newspaper. That's a much different job. And I was totally overmatched. I got my brains beat out on that beat for a year. Then I started to eventually figure it out, but it was still the greatest year I've ever had to that point because I got to cover baseball every single day and it was glorious. Being a Cub reporter, and this is really interesting to me because I'd sit in that locker room and for years I'd see you coming, you know, that new guy on the block. And <laughs> you know my you know my personality. I wasn't going to make it easy on you. I wanted to see what you were made of. I'd test you. And recently on the Boone podcast, we had Sweeney Murty, who's been covering the Yankees for 20 years. And uh, he remi- I, I remember Sweeney. I remember uh, when he first got there. And he told me a story. He said, Brett, he said, that first year covering the Yankees, he said, I had to come over and talk to you. And he goes, for some reason, you weren't very approachable. And I started laughing. I said, Sweeney, now you know me for real. That was kind of a shtick and an, and an act. I was going to test you. And he said he came up to me. <laughs> he had some questions asked me. He said, but I was trying to find out how to, how to broach them with you. And he said to me, uh, so, Brett. Uh, how's your dad? You know, what's your dad up to these days? Well, at the time, my dad was the manager of the Cincinnati Reds. I said, I don't know, sweetie. I, th- I think he's managing the Reds. <laughs> and sweetie and sweetie said, I can't believe it was the dumbest question. I froze. And I said, you know, that's kind of part of being that that rookie. We went through a similar thing as rookie players, you know, different in a lot of ways. But but we have similar challenges to you. Tell me about being a cup reporter and the challenges for you. That first uh, real reign of yours, which is for the Texas Rangers. Don Zimmer was the skipper. You mentioned Sunberg. He was he was on those teams. Buddy Bell, Fergie Jenkins. Uh, I want to hear about being a cup reporter and, and the challenges you, you faced. Right. Well, I'm going to have to use a bad word here, and I don't know if you can use it in the podcast, but I have to use it for the effect of the story. Before I got to Dallas, I was Dan Shaughnessy's backup covering the Orioles for the Dallas, uh, for the uh, Washington Star. So this is 79, 80, 81. I was the backup, and I was not the beat guy or anything close to it. So the first time I met Earl Weaver, talk about a guy who would test you. The first time I ever met Earl Weaver, Dan brings me up to Earl. Dan's the beat guy. I'm his backup now. And he says, Earl, this is Tim. Tim's going to be covering the team once in a while when I'm away. And Earl looks at me and goes, fuck you, Tim, and walks away. (laughs) 
So I'm like 22 years old. I'm scared to death anyway. And I get F-bombed by the greatest manager in the game at the time. And for me, one of the three greatest managers of all time. He F-bombs me and walks away. And Dan Shawsey looks at me and he goes, oh, Tim, don't worry. That's what he says to all the guys that he really likes. Really likes? He just met me for 10 seconds ago. And he F-bombed me and walked away. I almost started to cry. I didn't know what to do. So that was my start to my baseball, Major League Baseball writing career, was getting F-bombed by Earl Weaver, who I later covered every day, never enjoyed a season more than 1986, the year that I covered the Orioles, and Earl was the manager, and I spoke to him for an hour, two hours, every single day. It was so, so great. But fast forward to the Rangers, 82 May, they've lost 11 games in a row. I stagger into Don Zimmer's office, and you can just see the look on his face, Brett, because you knew him well. So Zim's got that forlorn look on his face, and I drag in with no smile on my face. Zim looks at me, and he goes, what the hell's wrong with you? And I said, well, Zim, sorry. This just isn't as much fun as I thought this would be covering this team because they'd lost 11 in a row. They were indescribably bad. And Zim looks right at me, and he goes, why don't you just shut up, okay? Look at you. You're young. You've got your whole life in front of you. He said, look at me. I'm old. I'm fat. I'm bald. I'm ugly. i got a plate in my head, and I've got this team to manage. I'm the one with all the worries, not you. So quit complaining and recognize how lucky you are to be doing the job you're doing. And that was it. I needed that. I needed a kick in the pants. And that day with Zim reminded me again that I was still – the luckiest guy in the world to be covering Major League Baseball, even though the team that I was covering was terrible. And it is, and it is right what they told you. He said, he said to you, that's what he says to you if he likes you. And you probably, through your journey in this game, realize that that's kind of the case. I remember the guys I loved, the guys on the beat that I really loved and respected, uh, it wasn't a, a uh, your typical, hello, sir, how you doing when I'd see you coming to the ballpark. It was usually something uh, <laughs> pretty off the cuff and, and in the normal world would be unacceptable. But those are the guys that I really like. That was, that was my way of saying hello. And, and I'm sure you found that out through your travels. Yeah, and I remember one exchange with you, Brett. I'll never forget it. You, I was at... Uh, Sports Illustrated, I want to say, and you had hit a home run into the second deck in Seattle, and that was quite a blast. So I called you on the phone because I was writing a little, you know, really short story about how good Brett Boone is and what kind of start he's off to and look at the ball he hit the other night. So I called you on the phone and I said, Brett, you hit a ball in the second deck last night. And you said to me, in no <laughs> kind words, you said, I go up there all the time in batting practice. What are you talking about? Like, I made a big deal out of you hitting the second deck. And you yelled at me to tell me that you do that all the time in batting practice. So I had to back off. Sorry, I didn't realize that you did that every day at BP. So that was the test that I got from you, and I'm guessing I failed that test pretty bad. Oh, that's that sounds such something I would say. <laughs> yeah, that, that is funny. Because you're right, back, especially back in those days, uh, now it's a little bit different in Seattle. I hear from the players, I hear from the, from the guys that cover the team, that the ball's flying out 
a little better than it used to. And it's because of the buildings that they put up in the background. It had something to do with, with the wind patterns and stuff. Balls seemed to go up. But back then, you're right. I mean, you had you, you were covering the team back then, and you saw, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. left because he said the ballpark's too big. Alex Rodriguez complained all the time. Then I came in there, and it was a challenge. And it was Safeco Field. Now it's T-Mobile. It was a challenge back then. But, yeah, you're right, though. It was a big deal then when you hit it in the upper deck. And I think I just said that to you because, yeah, I might do it in batting practice, but in the game, it was very rare to hit one up there. And, and you you were lucky to do it a few times. But, yeah, that was just me being me. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it, believe me. And your brother's done the same thing to me along the way, too. Every once in a while, when we would broadcast a game together or do baseball tonight together, I would say something, and he would he would jump at me. And I really enjoyed it because I remember saying something on the air one night, third baseman, in between hop, difficult play. And your brother texted me immediately. He, he wasn't doing the game. He was at home. As soon as I said that on the air, because I like to think I understand what that in-between hop at third base is like when it hits and just explodes on you. And your brother texted me immediately, and he said, that was not a difficult play. The third baseman didn't get it on the first hop. He made a mistake on that play. He made it a difficult play. Don't let him off the hook. So I've been a part of the wrath of the Boons a couple times. Even your incredibly nice brother, who's so much nicer than you are, even he jumped at me, and it was hilarious. <laughs> it was so good. But it was another learning experience for a writer like me that someone who actually played on the highest level is going to teach me something. And all kidding aside, Brett, this is the favorite part of my job is that I sit next to a big leaguer virtually every night now. And if I'm not sure about something, I can always turn to Eduardo Perez or Mark Teixeira or Aaron Boone or Buck Walter and say, tell me what happened there. I think I understand that, but tell me if I've seen it correctly. And that's the best part of my job is I am surrounded by people who played the game at the highest level. And no matter what kind of stupid stuff I might know in baseball history, I will never know what it's like to play in the big leagues. And that's why you former players are so, so important to this game is you can tell us here's what happened on that play. Yeah, that's so interesting because I'll, I'll do it too. I'll still sit here and, you know, if I'm watching a game and a buddy of mine is, is you know, uh, broadcasting the game and he says something, I'll, I'll I'll send a similar text. And if Eduardo says something, I'll say, Eduardo, how can you say that? You know that's wrong. You know, I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm that guy behind the, you know, behind the guy that nobody knows so I can be as aggressive as I want. He knows that he's kind of walking that line on TV, but it, but it's fun for me to do that. I do that all the time to my buddies when they're doing the game. All right, so we get through the Texas run, and you're kind of back home. 86, you go to the Baltimore Sun. And uh, the alumni at that newspaper, uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, Dan Fawlty worked there, Ken Nigro, uh, Peter Pascarelli. And then following me, we had Buster Olney, Ken Rosenthal, Richard Justice was there. A lot of really good writers went through Baltimore. It was a great thing. And, Brett, the key there was I went from covering the Rangers 
in Texas, and the Rangers were terrible. So as soon as Tony Dorsett started running wind sprints in July, my stories on the Rangers went from page one back to page five because the Cowboys were the only game in town, ultimately. But when I went to Baltimore, the Orioles were the only game in town. Remember, the Colts left like early in my term at the Baltimore Sun. So now we don't have a football team and we don't have a basketball team. So the Orioles are king. And that made it so important because I knew that I am covering the number one sport in town. I know that people are waking up in the morning. And the first thing I want to read is the story on the Orioles. And that's what made my time in Baltimore so great. I grew up in Maryland, so I understood the Orioles' tradition and their heritage, which was so rich and so thick. Again, the teams I covered there were really bad for the most part, but it was a wonderful experience for me to cover a team that I kind of followed growing up. I was a Washington Senators fan as a little kid, not an Orioles fan. But to cover the Orioles for, for four years there was a dream come true, and I did it at a newspaper that just just did everything it could possibly do with the Orioles, and that made, that made being a beat writer even more important is that I'm covering the number one beat on their, in sports at the newspaper. 89, become the senior writer at SI, Sports Illustrated, biggest magazine in the world. How was that for you? Well, that was an enormous adjustment, Brett. It was like it was like being a I used to be a baseball player, let's say, and you play every single day when you're the beat guy and you work for a newspaper. There's a paper every day. So if you have a bad game or in my case, a bad story, you can always make up for it the next day because there's another game tomorrow. Or today, it's you know how that works. But when you go to SI, I felt like I was a football player, meaning I only had I only got to play once a week because that's only when the magazine came out. So now the pressure is enormous. That I whatever I write, there is no excuse anymore. Well, I ran out of time, or I was on deadline. I had a week to write this story, and it had better be good. That pressure was enormous, and I will tell you, Brett, there were writers at. Sports Illustrated, including Steve Russian when I was there, who were so much better than me that it was it was embarrassing to be on the same staff as them. Because I recognize no matter how well I write, I will never write sentences like some of those guys, especially Steve Russian. It would be like, sorry, Brad, I know you were a really good player, but it would be like you playing next to you know, to Lou Gehrig every day or playing next to Willie Mays every day. And you could say, look, I could knock in 141 runs one year, but I'll never be as good as him. Never on my best day. And that's the way I felt for my eight years at Sports Illustrated is that I'm writing with people who are so much better than me. But that that drove me to try even harder just so I could get something in the magazine without embarrassing myself. That's how high the level was there and the pressure was on me and it was a great it was a great eight years for me because it taught me you better be better than you think you are because anything else is not going to be good enough for this magazine timmy you 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 didn't have to reach for the boone garrick because (laughs) listen listen to this i get I'm this hot shot. I think I'm this hot shot coming through the minor leagues. I get to the big leagues in a year and a half. And and I'm telling you, I am, I am it. Just ask me. 
I get to the big leagues of the kingdom. And guess who's sitting across the, the room for me? Caddy corner of my locker. This is Ken Griffey. This is Junior. And, and I think I'm this stud. I mean, roll out the carpet. I'm this, I'm that. And I'm watching Junior. This is third year in the big leagues. We're the same age. And he's, he's mentoring me like he's my father. And the, you know, the crazy thing is nobody my age ever gave me advice about baseball, how to play. Cause in my, I was always the best. All of a sudden I'm, I'm playing next to, you know, what to this day, greatest player, greatest teammate I ever played with. And he's talking to me like, Hey Booney, listen, you know, cause you know how Kenny is out in the open. He's, yeah. he's yeah. this and he's that and everything's cool. But when he gets you one-on-one, he he's he's got a big heart and he really cares and he was kind of looking out for me we're the same age but he's giving me that fatherly advice like brett listen this is the big leagues and 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 he's teaching me the ropes and i'm sitting there going i can't believe i'm sitting here with a guy that's my age and he's this much more accomplished than me already because i had never i had never seen that coming through the minor leagues it was really interesting and i and i also do remember you mentioned the year i drove in 141 runs i remember a day and i i think it was september and we're playing the san francisco giants and i'm looking you know at that point i'm digging myself i'm looking at the you know the when you when you come up to bat your stats are flashed up ah, look at those things take a picture of those but i remember standing at second base when Barry Bonds was hitting <clears throat> and I thought I'm not even in the same stratosphere. I can't even carry this guy's bats out for batting practice. He's that much better than me. So yes, I definitely had those moments and, and I can relate with, with your uh, sports illustrated experience that there are guys that will humble you in a heartbeat that you run into just when you think you're that good there there's somebody there to remind you that you ain't that good kid and uh, i definitely right. had my share that's that's right. very scott, cool. scott bradley told me the story once about ken griffey jr when he got drafted he's 18 years old they bring all the draft choices to the kingdom for batting practice. Most 18-year-olds would be a little bit nervous coming to the big ball yard and hitting in front of the team that eventually they want to play for. Griffey Jr. gets in the cage and just hits line drives all over the field as an 18-year-old. And while he's doing it, he's literally cracking jokes with the the media who are standing around the batting cage watching an 18-year-old take BP for the first time. It was, Scott Bradley said, I've never seen anything like it. Instead of being nervous, he's the most relaxed guy in the world. And all he did was hit line drives, took a 10-minute break, came back, and then hit every ball in the upper deck at the Kingdome. That was how special and good Ken Griffey Jr. was at the as an 18-year-old. He was amazing. All right, now we get to 98, uh, where, where you currently reside. 98 to present. ESPN, uh, kind of the granddaddy of them all at the time, and still is. You're a baseball writer, uh, television journalist. Did you call them or did they call you? Uh, they, I kind of called them because I sensed that, well, what, what happened was Peter Gammons, my dear friend, the greatest baseball writer of all time. I will argue that with anyone. He was doing an, an enormous amount of work and he needed some help on television because he was working like seven days a week and they finally needed a secondary writer 
to come work with Peter Gammons at ESPN. So when I got that call, I said, oh my gosh, I get a chance to work next to my hero, Peter Gammons, and I get to cover baseball for ESPN. So it was a difficult thing, Brett, to leave Sports Illustrated. Nobody back then left SI, but I saw the writing on the wall that I might have a better opportunity here. And it turned out to be ultimately a better opportunity, but you can appreciate this. Back then, there was this incredible disparity, this gulf between the writers and the broadcast guys. And now I'm going, I'm staying as a writer, always, always a writer first, but now I'm going to go on TV and I'm going to wear a tie to games. And I remember doing that. And some of my writer friends looked at me like, what are you doing? You, you're a trader. You're going over to the broadcast side. And I guess I was to some degree, but I have to explain, this is my best way to still write about baseball. So it turned out to be a great experience right away. I was scared to death going on TV right away. I, I spent a fortune on clothes because <laughs> I would do baseball tonight standing next to Harold Reynolds who's wearing a $3,000 suit. And I just got something from the heck company, you know? So I had to upgrade my wardrobe at an enormous expense. I had to start wearing makeup. I wore more makeup than my wife did. And, um, I ended up walking around in circles, talking to myself an awful lot, preparing for TV hits. So it was an enormous adjustment for me. But fortunately, all of my beat writing experience, how to find a story, how to write a story, all helped me do stuff in television because it was the same idea. I just had to do it for a different medium instead of writing it. I had to say it on TV. And fortunately, my beat writing experience kind of prepared me to do that. Yeah, it, it was an interesting time. I mean, that was it, you were you you talk about you're you're a uh, a writer and now all of a sudden you're on TV. You're kind of it's kind of like the I don't know, it's it's the combination worlds colliding. You're a multimedia journalist at this stage. Uh, baseball writers on TV. That wasn't something that always happened and you mentioned uh, your fellow writers are going, "Tim, what are you doing? You're you're kind of selling us out." So you're kind of in between uh, you know, Jason Starks and the Buster Olney's. You mentioned Peter Gammons, the late great Pedro Gomez. This is this is a kind of a time in history for sports and you're kind of trailblazing it. Did you did you have did you notice any resentment from the TV personalities? Yeah, originally, uh, initially a, a little bit like, who is this guy? But I, it was pretty clear as soon as I got there that this guy doesn't know how to do television, but he, he, he loves baseball and he knows what he's talking about. So they did, they welcomed me in um, with open arms and mainly because Peter made sure that they did. And, and you're right. When I first made the trade, Peter was the first to go over. He was the trailblazer. I was in, I was like the second guy to go over for baseball. And now everyone's over doing all sorts of radio shows, podcasts, television. So I'm no trailblazer. Peter started all of this, but I'm thrilled after all these years that writers get to do more than just write. And I think it's helped the business tremendously because the one thing that we have is we have beat writing experience, which teaches you again, all the important lessons of journalism 
and which are still exceptionally important today in every medium, radio, TV, and writing. 2012, you and Crucky, John Cruck, uh, you're making your, you're doing your spring training rounds in Florida. Players are starting to do impressions of you, which pretty big form of flattery. When players start imitating you, that that's a that's a pretty cool thing. Once again, got uh, Earl Weaver cussed at you. Pretty cool <laughs> thing when he when he yells at you first thing. Um, they call it kirchening. I think the first guy to do it was Elliot Johnson. Actually, the kind of the coolest thing since Berman started giving out nicknames. And by the way, Berman. I don't think he's ever given me a nickname. I resent that a little bit. That's, that's, for, that's for another day. Tell me about that when it first, the Kirchening first started, and, and how did you receive that? All right. Well, the first guy to do it was J.P. Aaron Sebia of the Blue Jays, and here's what happened. And, of course, Terry Francona, the mischievous manager, former manager of the Red Sox, had just come to work at ESPN his first year there. So we go – to, to Blue Jays camp one day, Tito, Carl Ravitch, and myself. And one of the guys says to Tito, you got to bring Kirkchen over. J.P. Aaron Sebia does the best Kirkchen impersonation you've ever seen. So I walk into the middle of the clubhouse in Toronto in spring training in Dunedin. It's a tiny little clubhouse, and there are about 60 players in a circle with me, Tito, Ravi, and J.P. Aaron Sebia does an impersonation of me that was so incredibly terrible and stupid and hilarious. The entire room was cracking up, including me. So I think that's the end of it. But Tito, the mischievous former manager, he gets Aaron Sebia to go on the set while I was somewhere else and pretend to be me. So Tito is now interviewing J.P. Aaron Sebia as if he's me, and Aaron Sebia is using my voice. And it's the single stupidest thing ever, but it's taped. So now I'm on the live show like three hours later, and I have no idea this is coming. I'm totally ambushed. And they run J.P. Aaron Sebia as me on the show. And it is so hysterically funny. And at the beginning, I thought, this is so embarrassing. I'm a, I'm a real journalist. I'm a serious journalist. And this guy is poking fun at me. But I repeat, Brett, you have to have a laugh with yourself along the way. So that's where it started with J.P. Aaron Sebia. And then Elliot Johnson did one. And then Ryan Dempster did one. And my boss called me, my TV boss called me and said, Tim, look, if this is embarrassing you, we will stop doing it. But I'm telling you, he said, this is television gold. Because to get someone to Im imitate you, not only is it hilarious, it's flattering. It took me some time to figure that out. But eventually I said to J.P. Aaron Sebia, please, J.P., tell me that you impersonate a lot of other people. Tell me that you do Jack Nicholson. And he goes, no, I can only impersonate you. You're the only one I can do. So I threw up my hands and said, all right, I guess this is okay. And I'm going to take one for the team here also. Very cool. It is highest form of flatter. There's not too many players that, that imitate, uh, uh, an ESPN broadcaster, journalist, writer. <laughs> that's that's you're in you're in uh, you're in rare air in that one. Let's talk about the game today, from your Rangers days to present. What does Tim Kirchin see as the biggest difference? 
Well, the money is really different, but I'm not going to go there because that's, that's not important. We all know the money has changed so much in the game um, that the players are on a level now as they should be because they're so good that it just separates them from everyone so much that sometimes they've lost track of where everyone else is in the game. In other words, when I first started covering baseball, I was covering players who were making $70,000 a year and they were happy making that. That's how long I've covered. Now the average salary is, you know, almost $5 million a year for the average salary. We got guys making $35 million a year. So the money has changed an awful lot of stuff. The, the size of the players has really changed the game. Also, I, I think about this all the time, Brett, how big, strong and fast these guys are today. It's, it's just breathtaking to see how big Fernando Tatis Jr. is and Ronald Acuna, not to mention, you know, um, uh, all, all the, you know, Giancarlo Stanton and er- everyone else. They're bigger, stronger, and faster than ever. And that's been another enormous change in the game. But I must say, Brett, it worries me a little bit that, you know, Aaron Judge is this big and all these guys are this big and they're so unbelievably physically gifted. But I wonder sometimes if they know how to play the game like you knew how to play the game and like your brother and like your dad, and like your grandfather. Sometimes I worry that they just overpower the game with their physical gifts, and they really don't understand completely how to play the game, how to run the bases, how to hit the cutoff man. That's the kind of stuff that worries me a little bit today. There's no question the players are bigger, stronger, faster, and better than ever. But you have to know how to play this game. And I worry, especially when I watch the base running today, do our players really understand how the game is played? I'm not so sure about that certain nights, and it worries me. Yeah, I agree with you. And and, and I think it starts at the at the <clears throat> at the early levels. It it starts at the you know, A ball and what is in, what what the kids are told that is important. Home runs, launch angle. What what gets me a little, you know, crazy is is watching a a, a telecast and it, and we're talking about exit velocity so much. It's like that's great. That's that's fun for the fans. It's great. They want to see how hard the guy's throwing. I get the radar gun. Uh, how fast the ball's coming off the bat. That's really cool for a fan that comes to the game. It's you know he's getting the he he's getting to witness and and. Uh, be a part of the whole the whole show, let's call it. But but you're right. It's not about exit velocity. It's about a good approach. It's about getting a good pitch. It's about playing the game right. And and I agree with you. I don't know if that's getting lost. You know, I understand these shifts, but but it worries me when consistently players are taking cue cards out of your out of your pocket to read. It's like, all right, I got to go stand on that X over there because that's what the card says. But that's I, I can't really fault him for it because that's how they've been brought up in the game. I think there's a there's a uh, I, I want to call it a curve coming where I think there's a a great um, I think it would be great if you can combine. You've got to take past generations uh, 
there's there's some great things from my dad's generation great things grandfather my grandfather's generation my generation there's a lot of great things there's a lot of great things with this modern day player that i really like but but they could learn something from previous generations and we can learn something from them i think there's something in between there where, where baseball comes together and it's a perfect match i think we're figuring that out just because of of the day we're in the generation we're in the technology at our fingertips man you talk about the positive things i look at today's game and and i'm just i'm a bit jealous because they have so much uh, knowledge right at their fingertips they can open that that ipad up and uh, if you told me, Timmy, before a series, I go into Boston for four games and I've got every pitch on tape that every pitcher on that roster's thrown in the last two months, I'd be a kid in a candy shop. I'd sit up all night and just study and study. So I really do envy that about today's game. But I think there's a happy medium in there where it can come together and be baseball uh you know, a little old school combined with the new. But but I, I think your point's well taken about uh, your worries, but also the real positive things. The physicality is unbelievable. You walk into that Yankee clubhouse, it's like walking into the New England Patriots clubhouse. It's the, the yeah. size of these players. I, I always knew I was challenged with height, but being around <laughs> all these players now, it's like, I can't believe you're that big. And, and you mentioned Tatis. He's not considered one of the big guys in the game, but he's huge. He's Alex Rodriguez. <laughs> it, it's amazing, Brett. And, and I'm with you on finding the happy medium because we have to find it. And, and let's reinforce this point. This is not the player's fault that they're taking something out of their pocket. It's not the player's fault necessarily that they strike out all the time at a rate that we've never seen before. This is what the industry has told them to do. The industry is bringing them to the big leagues probably before they're ready to go. But because they're so gifted, the industry is saying, come on up and we'll teach you up here. I maintain we've stopped watching the games these days. And even though you would be helped greatly by that iPad and that little thing you would put in your pocket, you also know, Brett, that even though you're taking out something to look at Pedro Martinez tonight, when you go face him that night, he might have something different than what you saw on that iPad. He might have added another pitch, or his curveball wasn't working that night, or his changeup was so exceptionally great that night. And that's where you, a really good hitter, would have made the adjustment to recognize this is what Pedro's trying to do to me. This is what worries me now, is we go in with a game plan, and we don't have a second game plan for our hitters. They go in thinking, this is what I'm going to do. And they're incapable certain nights of making an adjustment to the pitcher because they have all things in place. And if something changes, they can't adjust to it. That's what we have to do better in baseball. But I repeat, the industry has taught them to be this way. And we need to get out of that and get back to reacting a little bit more rather than just studying. Yeah. And, and you're right. It starts when I step in the box, I can have all my knowledge going into that box. But here's with it with a great one. And you mentioned Pedro. He was one of the best. He would read body language. He would read how I took a pitch. He had Jason Veritek back there that, man, I didn't like when Jason was back there because he thought deep on another level. 
and he was thinking like I was thinking, and he knew I knew. So now here comes the chess match. Now I've got to mix it up a little bit. And that game inside the game, we take it to a different level. And that's what it's all about. And, and that's the real tough part, but the challenging part. And when you come out on top, the rewarding part. I, I could talk about this all day. I love the intricacies of the game. The game at thought at a higher level. I was taught to do that by Edgar Martinez. It's so fun to me. It's so fascinating, the mental side of the game and how important it is. And the guys that can really think it and put it into action are, are the great ones that you see out there. I watched that Houston Astros lineup. There's a lot of game inside the game going on there. And I know they had the, the, you know, the big scandal and all that, but that's a talented lineup and they think the game and you can just tell, I, I can see the guys on the field that the Houston Astros of, of my generation with Bagwell and Biggio, they thought the game, you could tell. I learned a lot of, of the things I did later in my career from a Biggio. I would tell our pitchers, listen, I know you've gotten Bijou out all day. I'm telling you, close and late, he's going to be sitting on your neck waiting for that slider. And I don't care how good of a slider you throw, when he's sitting on it, he's going to hurt you. And more times than not, they would do it. And that's where I started to learn how to play that that deep-rooted game. And I, I'd love to see more of that as we go on. There's still guys out there, don't get me wrong. There's still really elite guys out there that that do it. But I think we have to start doing it more widespread. I think it would make the game a lot better and get that and get that happy medium that we talked about. Yeah, and let's not forget, the, the Astros have been good for several years now, but Dusty Baker has added a different element also, the old-school element. He once told Ryan Zimmerman when he was the Nationals manager, he said, look, I'm not interested in your exit velocity. I'm, in your, I'm interested in your exit hits. That's how he put it to Ryan Zimmerman. Like, I don't care how hard you hit it. Just get a hit. That's what I want. And that's what he's instilled on those Astros who have all the saber metrics they need, all the advanced metrics they need. But they also have an old school manager saying, this guy's going to throw you a heater on the first pitch because I've been watching the game. I know what he's going to do to you. And that's part of the process that they take to the plate. And that's one reason they're the best hitting team in the major leagues. Yes, they are. Um, Uncle Aaron, we call him Arnie. You got to work with him at, at ESPN. Uh, how is that relationship between you and him? And how is it now covering him as a manager? Well, again, I've covered – at ESPN, I've probably worked next to close to 100 former players who are analysts next to me on the desk or in the booth at a game. And your brother's in the top three of guys that I enjoyed working with. Buck Showalter is up there. Crucky's probably up there. But Booney was so much fun to be around because your brother is the most normal former major leaguer that I've ever met. He loves fantasy football. He loves basketball. He can impersonate so many people. His, his level of curiosity is so high and he is so observant. I think the funniest thing I ever did with your brother was I had him on baseball tonight when I used to host the show it was called the seam head edition. It ran for about four years and it was kind of like, I got to do whatever I wanted on the show. It was the favorite thing I've ever done at ESPN. So I told your brother, you're coming on with me this Sunday 
and I want you to do all of your batting stance impersonations. And it was his Ichiro is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. His Larry Boa, his Pete Rose, his Bake McBride, just name almost anybody from his time growing up. And he can do the most perfect batting stance impersonation ever. And I'm laughing out loud because it is so precise. So he whispers to me before we go on, he says, I'm working on my Joe Torrey. So I think he's going to give me Joe Torrey from 1971 when he hit 363 and knocked in 137 runs. Instead, he does Joe Torrey as the Yankee manager, the aging Yankee manager, walking to the mound to take out the starting pitcher. And I, I felt, I literally fell down on the floor during a live broadcast. I was laughing so loud. And it was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. So working with your brother was uh, an absolute highlight of my ESPN career because he never took himself too seriously, but he was very serious about the game at certain times. And he made me laugh so many times. You know what he could also do, Brad? I've never met anyone else like this. Dopes like me who have nothing else going for them in life. No, like uniform numbers and things like that. And I, I got into it with your brother about, we would just name somebody and he would be able to guess his uniform number, like Johnny Ray. And he would look at me like, don't waste my time. Number three. I've never met a player that could remember that. And here's the other thing that he could do better than anyone I've ever seen. He used to take a baseball card and he could tell you in which stadium that the picture was taken. You know, you don't always get a baseball card taken in your home stadium. And he could look at a tiny little tell in the picture on the baseball card and said, Comiskey Park, or that is the old Yankee Stadium. And I would say, how can you see that? And that's how observant your brother was. It was an absolute pleasure being around him for seven years. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, he was always, I, I watched it as a kid. He would, enter, he would entertain us in the living room with his Philly. He'd do the whole Philly lineup, but then he'd go into the broadcast too. And, and, you know, he, oh, he, he was, he, he could was do the play by play guy. He could do Dan Baker, the public address oh, guy the public, at the Phillies yep. game. It, it was great. But when he did, when he did Moses Malone at the free throw line, that was it for me. I love basketball. Also, he did Moses Malone shooting a free throw and I almost peed my pants. It was so unbelievably funny. And only your brother would be interested enough to perfect an impersonation like that <laughs> in your career. And this is not necessarily your favorite guy, but who's been some of your favorite guys to watch perform? Uh, well, Pedro is the greatest pitcher I've ever seen. And again, this is for short term. I mean, Maddox was, was, Amazing. Clemens, Randy Johnson, all all better than Pedro in long-term value, career value. But Pedro, 99-2000, I couldn't get enough of him. I mean, his ERA, Brett, those two years was 1.90. And the league ERA those two years was 4.90. He was three runs below the league average. So he's my favorite pitcher to watch because there was no telling. I believe 
He had the best fastball, best curveball, and best changeup in the game all at the same time. And I've never seen another pitcher who had the three best pitches in the game all at the same time. So he was my favorite pitcher to watch. And I think Tony Gwynn is my favorite hitter to watch all those years, even though, you know, there's so many others. Mike Trout, my goodness, Barry Bonds is the greatest hitter I've ever seen. But Tony was my favorite to watch just because he was a magician at the plate. And I was always dazzled how little his hands were. His, my, I got big hands for a little guy. My hands are twice as big as Tony Gwynn's hands. And I would watch him go up there with that tiny little bat and hit a hard ground ball between shortstop and third. And I would wonder, how can he do that so easily? Then I learned he had the, he had the number 5.5 uh, stenciled on the tongue of his spikes. So when he would look down at his spikes, there would be the 5.5, a reminder to him, when in doubt, hit a hard ground ball between the shortstop and the third baseman. The things I saw him do from a distance on a major league field were amazing. And in 94, he hit 394. I'm certain if we had finished that season, Tony Gwynn would have hit 400, first one since Ted Williams. And he told me, Brad, and you can appreciate this, he used basically one bat the entire season. Now, he held it out against certain really tough left-handers that pitched in, like Jeff Facero, but only once in a while. The rest of the year, he used one bat and never broke it. He called it seven grains of pain. And he broke that bat the following spring training on a backfield in Peoria against Rob Piccolo, who was throwing BP to him. And so he told me, I almost started to cry when I broke that bat. And Rob Piccolo told me, I almost started to cry when I broke his bat. That was Tony, the artist. That was Tony, the magician. And I think I, I liked watching him hit more than anyone. You've written a couple books. You've written countless stories. Been on TV for years. What's the st one story you haven't been able to tell yet? Uh, <laughs> well, I think, I think I've told them all, Brett, because if I can't, if I can't, if I haven't told them now, then I can't tell it because I'm not allowed to tell it. Or I'm a journalist. Somebody told me something off the record. I can't ever use it. I can't break that bond. And because I love to tell stories more than anything in the world, that's what I do for a living is tell stories. I can honestly say there isn't one great story that I still have in my, in my bag here because I've used them all because I can't resist. When Cal Ripken's name comes up, I have to tell a Cal Ripken story and I have a, a million of those, but let me just, let me just tell you one story that maybe you didn't hear. This is a raging conflict of interest, but I used to play basketball against and with Cal Ripken while he was on the Orioles and I was covering the team. It was terrible. I should have never done that, but we played in this dingy little gym before he got his big gym at his house and we were playing five on five full court. But we're the only 10 guys in the gym, Brett. You know about this because you played in high school. If you lose the game, you're still playing the next game. All right? You don't have to sit out. So it's 14 to 14. Ripken's on the other team. And he uh, calls timeout to try to find a way to get the final basket and beat us in a game to 15. And they miss the shot. We get the rebound. We score. And he is pissed 
he lost a pickup game when he gets to play the next game anyway. That showed me again just his level of perfection when it came to whatever he was going to do. Whatever he was going to do, he was going to play it right, and he was going to win. And you can appreciate this too. If I was on the other team from him, he would pick me up occasionally when his man was slow getting down on offense. He would harass me all the way down the court in a pickup game, guard me from end line to end line. And he's a foot taller than I am. He weighs a hundred pounds more than I do. And finally, I just had to look at him and say, would you please just leave me alone? Would you please stop trying? And he said, (laughs) no. And that was it. That's when I knew I learned more about him as a baseball player by playing basketball with him because I recognized the competitive nature that he has. He's going to play it. He's going to play it right. And he's going to win. And if you don't do it right, you're going to hear about it from him. So I have a million of those stories. I've told all of them and someday I'll get a story. And when I get a new story, I'm just going to have to write another book because I have to have a place to put it. Awesome stuff. He's Muggsy Bogues, or he's, yeah, he's Muggsy Bogues and you down the court. I, I, they couldn't stand that. Tim Kirchin, uh, it was an honor. Pleasure. I, I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. What a career you've had. And what we do each and every Boone Podcast at the end is we bring the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, back for a question from the fans. Dano? Gentlemen, Tim, how are you? I'm well, Dan. How you doing? I'm doing okay. All right, Tim, this one comes from Jeff in Denver, and he wants to know this. How do you stay on top of everything? What do you read each morning? Well, the routine is usually the same. Um, I get up really early, 5, 5.30, 6 at the latest. I drink a Diet Mountain Dew in the morning. I've never had a cup of coffee. A Diet Mountain Dew at 5.30 in the morning, and I devour the box scores. I read them like it's the last thing I'll ever read. I'm always looking for all sorts of fun, quirky things in there. The box scores tell you so much. Then I read as much as I possibly can on what's going on. I make a whole bunch of phone calls. And then ideally, I go to the ballpark because there is no substitute for being at the ballpark. When I would walk through the Kingdome or the other ballpark, Safeco in Seattle, and talk to the players, that's where you learn everything. So we're trying to cover games now from a distance. It's really difficult to do. So that's how my day starts. Every day I write down, with by hand, I write down every score of every game, every team, standings, all that. It takes me half an hour every day. I've done that for 30 years. And for 20 years, I cut out every box score, from every game played, taped them in these notebooks and, and kept them in my office. So I had the box scores of every game for 20 years and I never missed a day. It was my only way to keep up on all 30 teams was to chronicle it with my hands and have it with me wherever I want. That was my only way and still is to try to keep up with what's going on with 30 teams. Wow. That's actually pretty incredible. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Well, my pleasure, Dan, and thank you, Brett. And you did, by the way, Brett, a really good job asking questions. I 
<laughs> journalists all the time. Asking a question is the most difficult part of our job. Asking a good question is very hard to do. And if I may say, you asked a bunch of really good questions. So thank you very much. You sounded like a journalist today, not a great former second baseman. Thanks, Timmy. I appreciate it. All right. I'll talk to you guys soon, okay? Mailbag. Brett, you know that sound, don't you? Mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag. All right, this first one comes from Tony in Sacramento and wants to know this. Brett, I saw on Twitter you threw out the first pitch in Seattle. How'd it go? Went good. It was, uh, you know, it was something that I never thought I'd think about doing, but for two days prior to throwing out the first pitch, I thought how I was going to do it. Uh, was I going to go to the rubber? Was I not? And uh, I'm telling you, it, it kept me up at night. But we got through it. I didn't quite throw a strike. Good height, good velocity. Nobody got hurt. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and it was really cool being back in Seattle. So you did not hit the camera guy in the nuts. That's the most I, important I part. Did. I did. No <laughs> Baba Booey. No Baba Booey, no 50 Cent. All right, back at the bag we go. This one comes from Jerry in Orlando, and he wants to know, Brett, when you played in the All-Star Game, what kinds of gifts and gear do you get, and who pays for your room and flight to the game, and how many tickets do you get? I think the players get four and then two guests, so total of six. Uh, the, the the teams are, you know, there's an all-star hotel. I think Major League Baseball takes care of that. The teams are responsible to get you to the all-star game. Uh, one of my all-star games, I, I just got on a flight, and other two, uh, our team owner at the time with the, with the Seattle Mariners, uh, we went on a private plane. Nice. And it was really cool. So, uh, yeah, different teams do different things. But I, th- I think that's the gist of it. As far as the gifts, um, nothing. You know, a lot of cool mementos that, that have insignias of the All-Star Game. But, no, we're not getting, like, Rolex watches or, or cars or anything like that. It's just pretty much, uh, you know, com- I don't know, commemorative stuff of the, that particular All-Star Game. One-of-a-kind items that, that everybody – you know that you can't buy in a in a in a shop. They're just issued to the you know to the players. Very cool. That's going to do it for the Brett Boom Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boom Podcast. The executive producer of the Boom Podcast is Rich Herrera. Digital content for the Boom Podcast gets provided by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends. And make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.